Well, here we go, everybody. Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. This week, we're back for the second part of my conversation with Tom Brady, the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. If you haven't heard the first part yet, find it on the podcast feed, episode 10, and you'll want to start there. But if you have already listened to episode 10, you know what a treat you're in for. This time, we talk about Tom's upbringing, which is where his incredible discipline really starts. Tom also talks in depth about the specific mindset shifts that have helped him break through the ranks in college and become the top-ranked quarterback he is today. Oh, and uh, I'm sorry, Atlanta fans, but yes, he talks about what was going through his head in that epic Super Bowl game against the Falcons when he and the Patriots were down 28-3 and came back to win it all. In every story, in every answer, Tom is teaching us a huge leadership lesson. If we want to lead well, we have to back up our goals with disciplined action. It's not enough to just set a goal or want to succeed. We've got to show up and make the choices that will actually result in hitting those goals. That's the kind of walk-the-talk leadership that people actually follow. I've met with a lot of leaders, and I admire a lot of leaders, but Tom is the very best example of it that I have ever seen. So here's part two of my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Tom Brady. You know, I know you're so close to your your mom and dad. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your mom and dad and yeah. tell tell me about what each one of them really taught you about leadership. Yeah. Well, I was, so I grew up the youngest of four kids. I had three older sisters and our family was very into sports. So at least three or four nights a week, we were at the baseball field, at the softball field, at the soccer field at night, you know, eating dinner at pizza parlors and just, that was our time. I went to school, I'd get home, I'd go to practice or I'd get home, I'd do my homework, I'd go watch my sisters play. And it was a great upbringing. You know, it was a totally different time than it is now. And there wasn't all the things that there are now for kids and TVs and iPads and so forth. It was a lot of outside playtime. I played in the neighborhood on our street. We'd play in the street. We had 40 or 50 kids that lived on our block. So <laughs> if you want to do something fun, like play football, we'd go out and we'd go and play in the middle of the street. And I'd go over to my best friend's house at 7 a.m. on a Saturday and knock on the door and can David play? And that was my upbringing. And it was just, it was a very, uh, I wouldn't have changed it for anything. And I think it taught me a lot about, you know, kind of being a part of a community. Playing with the older boys, you know, was always a great maturation thing for me. They would always say, all right, Tommy's playing. All right, so, you know, Tommy, go deep. As far, go, go, run down, down, down. <laughs> and they would never throw me the ball, you know? <laughs> and then I would get, I'd get so mad that they would tell everyone else, all right, everyone else go deep and throw it to Tommy. But, yeah. you know, it was just, it was a great way to grow up. And I think my mom and dad, you know, I, they're still living in the same house that I was, that I grew up in. Um, the neighborhood's changed a little bit. You know, families come and go a lot more now than ever. But, um, you know, my mom and dad were so supportive of me, so supportive of my sisters and everything that we did. And I always tell people with their kids, you know, don't ever put limits on your kids. Don't ever say like, well, that's going to be tough, you know, or try to manage your expectations. Oh, you can't do that. That's a hard thing to do, you know, because they always encouraged me. My mom would always say, you can do it. You know, you're, 
you know, you got all the ability, you got all the talent, you know, and I was, I clearly didn't, but you know, I had the encouragement from a mom and dad who said, yes, you do. And my dad was always available to me to, if I wasn't hitting the baseball, right. He'd take me up to the ballpark. He'd have his, uh, you know, he'd have his, his collared shirt on, he'd roll his sleeves up and he'd go up and he'd hit me ground balls, you know, and he'd, he'd throw pitches to me. And, you know, we go out on the golf course, just he and I, and it was just so supportive of what I wanted to do. They always encouraged me. And I think that's why I'm such a positive person. I grew up in an environment where my parents always said, go for it, do your best. And you had three older sisters who were great athletes in their own right, as I understand it. What was it like being the little little one with three big sisters around? It's amazing because when I grew up, they'd always say, oh, you're you're Maureen's brother. You're Maureen's little brother. Or you're Julie's little brother. Or you're Nancy's little brother. And, uh, you know, obviously now things have turned in the family because they're always like, oh, you're Tom Brady's sister. (laughs) You know, so we always joke about that. You know, for the first... 18 years of my life, I was, you know, Maureen Brady's little brother. And now for the last 18 years plus, you know, they've been Tom Brady's sisters. So, <laughs> you know, I, they're, they're so great. They, I mean, they're in this sweet cheering for me, you know, they're living. I mean, I got phone calls before, you know, preseason games going, good luck, you know, kick some butt <laughs> new season. So support of the families, you know, family is so important, you know, and to have people that care for you that are always there for you. I mean, it means the world to me. And I don't think you could accomplish things in life without support and mentorship yeah. and guidance and care. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you look at that, people need, they need to know that they can fall back yeah. on something and they need that they can get a little bump yeah. when they get themselves out of a rut. And I think I want to be there to provide that for people. I've had so many people provide it for me, you know, whether it's for young players that I play with, other quarterbacks, you know, I'm trying to give them a bump too because everyone needs it from time yeah. to time. Did you have someone outside of your family or in your early days that, that really helped you form the kind of work ethic and the discipline and the accountability you project every single day? I know that's a that's a great question because I think a lot about discipline and I think a lot about, you know, work ethic. And like when I went to the NFL Combine, you can't measure those two things. And they can measure your height, your weight, your speed, your, you know, your jumping, a lot of physical things. And I think I was blessed with some things that you can't measure, you know, by the grace of God, you know, in many ways that I just, this is what God said, all right, you're going to be really disciplined. Because I don't know how much you can develop that. I mean, I think you can, and if it's in you, you can develop it to a degree. But I was always born with a lot of discipline. And working out and hard work and work ethic and training, that stuff has never been very difficult for me. Even in college, I was a pretty hard worker. It's never felt like I've had to go to work, so to speak. It's never mm-hmm. felt like, man, that was a really hard workout. I've always enjoyed it. I've always tried to excel at it. And I think that's a, that's a really fortunate thing because I know a lot of players, professional athletes, they just don't love working out. They don't yeah. love training. And so that's you think our job. this is basically in you and you, you might have had some people that helped it along a little bit, but you, you actually believe you're sort of like a God-given, natural-born athlete. I think I was a god And leader. Yeah, I, I think I was naturally God-given work ethic and some discipline. Yeah. I think as a leader, I've, devel- I've tried to develop yeah. those traits, you yeah. know, and I think there's a lot of important aspects leaders need to, to focus on. But, you know, I think that's what – I wasn't born as Tiger Woods or LeBron James or – Cristiano Ronaldo, or, you know, just a gift, you know, these physical, you could see right away. You know, I think I've had to just do it a different way. Unfortunately, my position in football doesn't necessarily require some physical gifts. It requires a lot of mental gifts along with the, you know, the ability to do the job. But I mean, a lot of great leaders I've met, you know, there's a lot of people that got to figure out how to get the job done. Tell us a story that will tell us about the kind of person you you are, that 
that really showed you the kind of motivation that you innately have? Well, there's some funny ones when I was a kid. Like, you know, I didn't play a lot of video games. I played a little video games. Um, but I had a tense competitiveness to me in that when I would play video games and they wouldn't go the way that I'd want, I broke more remote controls, slamming them on the ground so hard, <laughs> throwing them at the TV screen, um, you know, to the point where my parents said, you can't play, you, you just can't do it again, you know? Yeah. And I remember, I think I was 10 or 11 years old. I went up to play golf with my dad and uh, we went up to this golf course in the Bay Area and we were going to a Giants game after because our whole team was going to go to the game. So my dad said, let's go play nine holes before and then we'll go to the game. I said, great. So I played about four or five holes and I wasn't playing good, you know, and I took the club and I lifted it up and I threw it so hard at the ground. My dad grabbed me, he said, get your butt in the cart. We're leaving. And I was, you know, I disappointed my dad. I was so mad. And he'd see, we're never doing this again. You know, I'm not bringing you up here for you to throw your clubs. And we went to a giant game. I pouted the whole, you know, the whole cart. I was so sad in a way. And then, you know, talked it through with my dad and, the best part is, you know, after that, we went to the Giants game and went back and played nine more holes together. And uh, it was a great experience in my life. I mean, I remember my dad holding me accountable and say, this isn't the way you're going to act. You know, that's you know? such a great story because, you know, I actually thought you'd talk about, yeah, you didn't necessarily start early on in high school. and But it shows yeah. that, that those other things really paid off, though, when you did get into football and you did really start to to take off in terms of your ambition and competitiveness. Yeah. And I think so much for me over the course of my career, it's been, if things don't go right, I think about what can I do better? I don't put it on, I've tried never to put it on other people. You know, yeah. if the ball was slightly behind the guy, I got to make a better throw. If we didn't get the job done, I got to be a better leader. If the practice wasn't good, I didn't hold the guys accountable enough. Mm -hmm. If I didn't, you know, make the right play, what do I need to help do with my technique and fundamentals? You know, I've learned by talking to lots of leaders, Tom, that the, the best leaders, they hold themselves accountable. They, they don't blame anybody else. If something goes wrong on the team, they take accountability for it. They shoulder yeah. that for the rest of the team. How much pressure does that just put on you as a leader, feeling that? Yeah. It's there. I mean, there's definitely an intense pressure to this environment. Um, I think because the competition's so tough. And um, we had a guy come speak to us the other day, a former coach. And he used a word that I haven't heard in a long time, two words that I haven't heard. And he said, competitive stamina. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that makes a lot of sense. You know, yeah. like anybody could get the job done for a week. Right. Anybody could get the job done for a month. But do you have the mental toughness to, and the competitive stamina day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year to get the job done? Yeah. And um, that's, that's what you're still working at. That's still the challenge. We were talking a little bit earlier about your, how close your dad is and how much he, he really helped you along with your, your mother become who you, who you are. When you think about you're going to college, I, I, I understand your dad was a big Cal fan yeah. and he really wanted you to go to Cal so you could, you know, he could watch you play your, your collegiate years and you yeah. decide to go to Michigan. Yeah. Tell us a story about when you told your dad that this was your decision. Yeah, he was pretty heartbroken. Um, I had I had some offers, and um, and I always thought, man, going to Michigan, it was when I wasn't a really highly recruited person, and because um, I was, I think, a late bloomer. And my dad put together a lot of cut cut ups from the videotape that you know he filmed um, over the course of my junior season to send to other colleges to say, hey, you know, here's a tape. That's kind of how things got shared back then. A lot of times. 
people would come recruit you and they would see you or hear about you and they would come watch. Well, I was really under the radar. So my dad was very involved in the process. And I remember we made 50 tapes, VHS tapes. And we were looking through a book of Division I colleges. And he was like, I said, Dad, do you think we should really send one to Michigan? Like, do you think I'll get, I, they'd even want me or get in there? And he says, yeah, you know, what the hell? Let's do it. And we sent them a tape. And they called, I think, a couple weeks later and said, you know, wow, we're interested in you, recruiting you. And I was being recruited, you know, by them and, and a lot of other schools. Finally got to the point where, you know, I – these schools are really interested, and I played better. I went to some camps. I got some more kind of notoriety, and um, Cal offered me a scholarship, which was 45 minutes from where I grew up, and I loved Cal. Um, but there was something about Michigan that maybe it was just thinking about being at the, one of the best schools in the country and one of the best football programs. And I went there on a visit, and I called my dad on the way home, and I said, mm-hmm. Dad, I, I think I know where I want to go to school. And... Uh, He was really, I think he was happy and he was sad. You know, he was really happy, but he was sad. And I think it was uh, just a cool, just a cool thing. And he, you know, dropped me off and my mom dropped me off. And, you know, they were so into Michigan. The first trip, you know, they go to the Michigan Union, they buy the sweatshirts and like all the parents (laughs) do. And, uh, you know, they've just been the best supporters for me. Yeah. Now, you weren't the starter right out of the gates. You know, how'd you deal with not being the starting quarterback for so long? It was really competitive. I was seventh on the depth chart when I started. And uh, that's a, you're looking up at a lot of guys and a lot of guys that were older than me and they were truly better than me. I I hadn't developed. I was just behind athletically than a lot of other guys. I was the youngest in my class. And uh, again, I think the work ethic and the discipline were helpful at at those times. And I've always had to work really hard because I felt like athletically I was behind a lot of people. So I never minded the work ethic. And I just developed a competitiveness. And I felt like I chose Michigan to be the best. I was going to go there to be the best. And after a couple of years, I was still looking up at some guys and it, and it looked daunting, but I just said, you know what, I'm going to compete. And if I'm going to be the best quarterback for, for Michigan, then they're going to play me. And that's what ended up happening. I ended up beating out some guys in my fourth year and I played my fourth year and fifth year there and we were successful. And I think Fortunately, the, the competition was really good for me at that point in my life. A lot of guys don't have to be that competitive in, in college. They're just the best. They don't have to be that way in high school. They're just the best. But being a professional is different than being an amateur. Mm-hmm. Being a professional is your job. Right. Being a professional requires professional characteristics and traits. It's different than being an amateur. Yeah. And that's, I think, in some ways, I excelled with my work ethic, my discipline, uh, I had, you know, great determination of what I wanted to be. And um, even though it was a really challenging experience in college, I would never have changed it because I could never have kind of fought through it the way that I did with support of a lot of people who still support me today. And I ended up having a, you know, a great career and a great college experience. I remember you telling me a story about making every rep count. You yeah. Know, that you, you know, every play you got to play in practice, if it was three, you know, Make yeah. them count. Yeah. It's a great story. Tell that story for our listeners. Yeah, I would, I was, I used to, it was, a, it was a bad mentality when in my first couple of years, because they're trying to get a lot of people ready to play. And I was always the one getting the fewest amount of reps, three reps, two reps. You know, there's 50 reps in practice and I'm getting two. I'm sitting here going, how can I show them what I'm capable of if I'm only getting two reps or only getting three reps or only getting four reps? And um, I started working with a psychologist in college. And a guy named Greg Harden, who still works for University of Michigan, helped a lot of great athletes. And he said, quit focusing on that bullshit. 
If you're going to get two, do the two as best you can and make them the two best that anyone else could do. And that's what I did. And after that, I got three reps. And he goes, if you're going to get three reps, do the best you could do with those three. Don't bitch that you're only getting three. And I started getting four. And then I getting five. And I was getting 10. And I was getting 20. You know? And it was like, wow, you know, you could focus on, oh, poor me. I'm not getting the opportunity. Or you could say, whatever I'm getting, I'm going to make them great. I'm going to bring energy, enthusiasm. I'm going to do it for the team. And that starts to wear off on other people. And then before you know it, I was the one getting the most. <laughs> and I, I always thought, wow, that's a great thing. So to this day, I think when I go on the practice field, you got to prove it every day. Your teammates want to see it every day. I can't go, okay, well, I, that one screwed that one up, but don't worry. So your attitude after all these years in the NFL hasn't changed on practice? I think it's only gotten more intense. I think yeah. there's an intensity that I need to bring in order, A, to see where my mental state is, and then B, to challenge my teammates. Because even though I've had a lot of years of experience with myself, I want to know before the game's on the line whether I can count on someone. So I've got to kind of press some buttons. Yeah. I mean, I got to figure out, can I count on you? You know, can I, are you going to be there when I need it the most? Can I trust you? Are you dependable? Are you consistent? Yeah. And the only way you can do that is to demonstrate that in practice. And I think if it's a lackadaisical practice or, you know, I see that in golf a lot. A lot of guys BS on the range. A lot of guys aren't focused. Man, guys, you know, the guys who I'd worry about are the guys that are focused. Yeah. You know, the guys that are going, hey, man, this is the, you know, this is a shot to win the Masters, you know, and get yourself in that mental frame of mind and see whether you execute. And if you don't, maybe it hurts a lot more than it was if like, oh, you know, who gives a crap? It doesn't count. Yeah. They all count, yeah. you know, if you push yourself to that. And a lot of people don't have that competitive stamina. You know, I want to get to your professional career in a minute, but I do want to just stop for a second. And I don't think many people know this, but you were an intern at Merrill Lynch. I know. You know, so yeah. tell us about that experience. And was there a leader there that you learned from either in a good way or a bad way? Yeah, I did. I So the, I was interning in college. I interned at two places. Um, one was the golf course because uh, I wanted free golf in the in the summer when I was back in Michigan. The other was at Merrill Lynch because I always thought I wanted to get into business when I was, you know, if I wasn't going to become a football player. And uh, I worked at a, just one of the brokerage uh, at the Merrill Lynch in uh, Ann Arbor. And I had two guys, Mike Halpern and, uh, and uh, Owen, great guy. And uh, he was a golfer. He would take me out golfing. And we just had so much fun. It was a, just a great experience. And I worked there for two, two summers. Um, I kind of just was there to help and, uh, and learn a little bit. And I'd put together my own portfolios and pretend like I had a certain amount of money and invest in a higher risk, medium risk, lower risk, and watch it, the, the market go up and down every day. How'd you do with that? I know. I, not as good. It was some, <laughs> You're a little bit was, better football player? I was a better football player. <laughs> thankfully, I had the right profession. But I don't think 98 and 99 were good times in the market. Yeah. So I don't think many things were doing that well. But uh, uh, I had a great time just just uh, kind of being there in that office setting. It was really fun. Now, you were drafted in both baseball and football. Um, yeah. Why football? Well, I, I got drafted out of college, uh, out of, excuse me, out of high school to the Montreal Expos. But at that point in time, I was in love with football. And I wanted to go to college. And uh, I didn't play baseball in college. And at that point, the reality was baseball was very taxing on my body, on my knees because I was a catcher. And my right elbow was, was always hurting. And, uh, I mean, it's amazing that football could be less stressful on your body than baseball. But that was the reality for me. And I fell in love with football just because 
the overall team sport and playing quarterback and leadership component of that, along with all the mental, physical skills. Um, and it was just football became my love. Now, you were drafted in football, obviously, but you didn't go until the sixth round. How yeah. Were you surprised that you didn't go until the sixth round? And how much did that really impact the way you, you thought about how you were going to attack uh, your professional life? Yeah, it was, it was challenging because when you go that late, in some organizations, you're not going to get as many chances as the other guys. You know, they're going to invest more in their higher picks, first round picks, second round. They really want those guys to succeed than their sixth round pick. You're relatively disposable if you're a sixth round pick. You better show something. And fortunately, I came to a team and a coach like Coach Belichick that really only values your performance. He doesn't care what round you were picked in. He doesn't care about, you know, whether you got you as a free agent, what you did last year, whether you won the Heisman Trophy or not. The best guys were going to play. So I was just very lucky to get picked at the right time with a coach who could mentor me and teach me about football, about defense, about being a pro, about holding people accountable. What yeah. would be the single biggest thing you think he's taught you as a leader? What he's shown me is you don't have to worry about anything other than doing what, you know, I expect you to do, which is play quarterback. Be a great quarterback. You know, you don't have to do offensive game plans. You don't have to worry about anything on defense, special teams. You play quarterback. And I'm going to coach, and I'm going to have the offense coordinator, you know, Josh, he's going to call the plays. And it's really allowed me to say, look, receivers, do your job. You know, running backs, do your job. You can't throw. You just block. Or when I give it, you run. Or yeah. they look at it like, what, what am I expected to do and how am I going to do it as best yeah. I can? What's the, what's the single biggest thing you've learned from Bob Kraft? He's very smart. And I think he, he has a lot of information. And he's got tireless energy to be, I mean, I remember we went to Israel. He took me, he and his wife, Myra, took me to Israel in 2006. And I remember I was so tired. I'd fall asleep in the taxi cab to him talking to the taxi cab driver, asking him questions and wake up an hour later, you know, him asking the taxi cab driver questions still, you know, we'd be driving from <laughs> one part of Israel to another. And I'm like, how is he doing this? You know, I'm 30 years younger than him. Mm. And he's just got a great, tireless energy for life and for people. And he's so outgoing and personal. He, he's he got a lot of relationships and he knows exactly when he needs to in, insert himself and what he needs to say to certain people. And he tries to encourage communication. And, you know, I think it's, it's really remarkable. Now, when you came to the Patriots, you followed the legendary quarterback in his own right, Drew Bledsoe. Yeah. And he was injured and you took over the team. Yeah. When you went in to take over the team at that point, you know, what was, what were you thinking? I always like to know what people are thinking yeah. when they get this, this moment of opportunity. Yeah. Drew taught me a lot about toughness because Drew took some hits that I've never seen anyone And professional football is, it's a demolition derby out there. I mean, this is not like college. I mean, this is a different level of competition and it's more intense. And the rules back then hitting quarterbacks were a lot different. And Drew played with a thumb that was totally dislocated um, I mean, just showed so much toughness and the play that he got hurt on was right here and, you know, got pushed out of bounds, got hit going down and ended up having internal bleeding. I remember going to the hospital, see him that night and I knew he was going to be out for a while. And I figured, you know what, if I'm going to go in, you know, I'm going to gain the trust of my teammates and I'm going to go hopefully never be taken off the field. And that was my mindset, you know, because I worked really hard at Michigan and I felt like, when I get my chance, 
you know, I'm never going to give it back to anyone. And my level of competition is going to, is going to exceed whatever they can ever bring in. And it worked well for me in college. So when I got to the pros, that was the same approach that I took. Like, I know there's people ahead of me, but when I get my chance to go show what I can do, they're going to say Tom Brady's the best one to lead the team. You know, when you, you took over the team, uh, you had great success. Do you still have that, un, I call it a healthy dissatisfaction for the status quo? Or, or did you find that yeah. moment or is there a moment where you said, you know, I've really arrived. I'm the guy. <laughs> I still don't feel like that. I mean, I got so much to improve on. And I think that's just part of what has always fueled me. You know, I've never felt like, man, this is it. You know, no more to earn here. No one, everyone should just respect me. I feel like, you know what, I'm going to go earn it every day and I'm going to try to be the best leader. I'm going to try to be the best performer. You know, if I make a bad play, I'm holding myself accountable. And you know what, if you mess up, I'm going to hold you accountable. How do you manage an inevitable conflict that's going to occur? I think it's always, you know, a healthy respect. You know, you can have things you don't agree on. We all have different ideas of what we need to do. But at the same time, you respect the other's a person's opinion and their decision. And I think you, when you have a healthy respect for one another, you know that we're just trying to win the game, yeah. you know, to, win, to have a great season. And that's the trust that you have in each other. So, so showing that respect to each other, you can, you can have the tough battles, but you know where each guy's coming from. Absolutely. You know? And I think not only that, but like, you know, that's how, that's marriage, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're married to a certain person. You don't agree with everything. I mean, my wife. You mean you don't agree with everything no, that Giselle I mean, says? Come definitely on. Definitely not. God, I mean, that's, <laughs> you don't. But you know what? You never say anything that, because words, you know, once they're out, they can't ever come back. And yeah. they can leave, you know, they can leave some scar tissue, yeah. you know? And yeah. sometimes when you're hurt, you want someone else to hurt too. And you say mean things and you say yeah. hurtful things. Yeah. And I learned that's not the way that I want to yeah. have a healthy relationship. So yeah. I try to do my best to never say anything that would, yeah. I would resent saying, because yeah. once it's out, yeah, it's hard to take it's, back. It's hard to take back. Does your leadership change with the style of team or the, the cast of characters you have each year, or do you just do basically the same things every year? To a degree, um, it changes and needs to evolve because I think, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get the best out of each guy, and you've got to find out what motivates them. And some guys, you've got to find different tools to use to bring them along, to gain their trust. And you want them to excel. You need them to excel. And if a guy's having a hard time and he doesn't like some criticism getting beaten down, then why are you going to add more on top of that? Find a way to chip away and be positive. I think a lot of it is psychologically you trying to connect with people so that you can see the results from each other. Because look, we're, I can't throw and catch. I yeah. can't block and throw. I can only do what I can do. I need other people to do their job well. Yeah. It doesn't matter if I do well, if I don't have others do well. It doesn't matter if they do well, if I don't do well. So a lot of it is just connecting with them. Yeah. A lot of that's trust and commitment. A lot of that is just psychologically being on the same page, you know, the same wavelength. And I think that's you know, a great part about this, the sport. Believe it or not, Tom, I read that you don't take losing well. Okay. Yeah. And you've that you've admitted, that. <laughs> you've admitted that you, you, you had to work on your body language to not be so hard on your teammates. Now, what adjustments did you, did you make with your body language and what advice would you give to leaders who struggle with their own body language? I know that's a great aspect. And I think about that a lot and I've got to continue to improve that. No one wants to see negativity when things are going well. You know, you don't have to be the most positive, but you could be neutral. 
because the negativity isn't going to empower anyone. So I feel like, you know, if things don't go right, let's come up with a solution rather than let's get negative and then figure out a solution. So I'm trying to skip the negative portion and just get straight to the solution. So it's a work in progress. I mean, it's not like you can just forget about that. I mean, you have to, and you have to have people that show you, hey man, change it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's shitty now. Yeah. Change it around. And I think yeah. that's part of it is yeah. I've got to always be aware of that. Yeah. You know, because you can see it too. There's 800 cameras here. I mean, if you throw your water bottle or throw your helmet, I mean, everyone's going to see it. Yeah. And I think being a positive leader, people want to be empowered. They want to be inspired. Yeah. They want to show them the way. And show them the way is a lot of times when it's easy to show the way when everyone's leading and giving you praise. It's hard to show the way when everyone's telling you how bad you are and you guys suck. And you say, listen, let's... This is what we're going to do. We're going to solve this and we're going to you know, make good things happen. Even your competitors, believe it or not, have great things to say about you. I want to read some of their quotes and ask you some questions as it relates to, to, to leadership. Now, here's a quote from Dion Lewis. And he said, there's no panic in the huddle. He's confident and focused. When we're in a pinch, he's there to get us out. Yeah. Now, Tom, leaders, leaders face the same things you face as a quarterback. Yeah. The team seems to be losing. People leave, you counted on, competitors are getting better. How do you yeah. stay focused and confident when you're behind? That's a, that's a great question. And I think that it's, it's always a bit of a challenge when you're down and you got to dig deep. And I think, you know, as a good example, when we were losing the Super Bowl a few years ago to the Falcons, 28-3, it couldn't get any worse at that point. I mean, I think we were... We were going to lose. And we just all looked at each other. We said, look, we got to just, you got to make one play. And one play turns into two. And two turns into three. And before you know it, you got the momentum. And I think that's a great trait. There, I'm never going to be in a game for the rest of my career where I don't think we can win because yeah. of some experience that I've had. And it's not like it can be false. Yeah. It's not a false confidence. It's a real confidence. And I think, you know, we feed off each other. We're very energetic souls. And I think when people feel confident, when they feel uh, the desire to win, I think that's, it flows. And when you get that, it's it's magic. You told me once, I think we were playing golf and actually behind, you said you can't win if you're not behind. <laughs> you, you can't come from behind if you're not behind. Okay? I know. Do you I know. relish being in that position? I do. And I think that it's, if you overcome that, think what they're going to be talking about tomorrow. It's not a great story if, man, you know, you got ahead, you stayed ahead, you ran away with it. People love the stories when you come from behind. Everyone loves those underdogs. It's almost like when you watch Bill Mickelson play, he hits a bad shot, but he's almost excited, more excited to hit the <laughs> shot that no one else could pull off than, you know, rather he be in the middle of the fairway. You know, it's just a different mindset. And I think you just got to shift the mindset sometimes. I think, you know, sometimes if it's not a perfect situation, people go, oh, God, how could I succeed? And they look for excuses. I think other people, they go, well, don't give it to me perfect. I want it rainy. I want it windy. I want the calls. You know, I want to beat them at their best. You What's know your I mean? attitude when you, have to, when you have to play when you're ahead? You know, when yeah. you're actually winning? I mean, what's, I think that's what? more challenging for me. I mean, if we got a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter, I mean, I think in some ways that's more challenging because – you know, you play with a degree of caution because you have a you have a lead. And I think sometimes when you have a deficit, you cut it loose. And sometimes cutting it loose, it's it's 
it's a real benefit to mm-hmm. cut it loose. And mm-hmm. it's been both. And I think you got to learn. I think the reality is you got to learn to do both. Now, when you're, you're you so know? confident, was there ever a time in your life where you struggled with your confidence? I wouldn't say a deep struggle with my confidence. I've always had an inner confidence. I think that inner confidence always ebbs and flows. I don't think I wake up out of bed thinking like, man, I'm going to go dominate today. I mean, I think I think I'm going to get my process right and I'm just going to put me in a great position to be successful. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Tom Brady in just a moment. As leaders, we can't just be people who talk the talk. We need to walk the talk. In my conversation with Anil Bushri, the co-founder and co-CEO and chairman of Workday, you're going to hear how he walks the talk, especially around their company's core values. You know, there are a lot of companies that have number one as customers. Dave's view was, if you don't have happy employees, you're not going to have happy customers. And to this day, I see that in spades. I've never seen happy customers and unhappy employees that appear together. It just doesn't work. Go listen to the rest of my conversation with Anil. Episode 67, here on How Leaders Lead. What advice can you give up and coming leaders on, on, on how to display more confidence? I think you, again, it's some degrees. I think you fake it till you make it. And I think you can show enthusiasm and confidence, even when it's just beginning. I don't think you need to wait for it to be this roaring sense of confidence before you can display any emotion toward it. But life is about emotion. You know, you have to bring energy and enthusiasm as a leader to motivate and inspire. You have to have a healthy drive to get people to bring them along with you. And you've got to be leading the, you know, you got to be leading the way. And I think if you're willing to do that, there's great benefit. Now it's work and it's, it's a commitment. It's no days off. I mean, you are, and once you establish yourself as that, you can never go back because people now look to you and they say, Hey, Tom, what, what's my job? What's my responsibility? When you say great job, that helps me a lot, yeah. you know, and it means a lot to people. And I yeah. think that's part of being a leader now. Like I know what I say has a big influence on players and that's a great thing to do. But if I use it wrongly with poor body language, with poor actions or poor words, then it does the opposite effect. Absolutely. So, yeah. Here's another quote from Kirk Cousins. He says, Tom's number one because of production and individual stats. He's had a revolving door with the supporting cast, yet he doesn't miss a beat. My question is, is today's workers aren't as loyal to an organization as like baby boomers were. Yeah. How do you keep winning, Tom, with ever-changing teammates? Yeah. I think there's no such thing as individual stats in football. I mean, this is the ultimate team sport. And I think for a quarterback, you rely so heavily on the other people around you. So this is all about our team and our culture. And once that system's in place, it's really about making great decisions. And it's like being perfect in football is impossible. There's too many moving parts. You have to be really good. You don't have to be perfect. And I think the focus is, hey, let's be Let's be really good every time. We don't have to be perfect, but we can be really good. And if we're less than really good, then let's improve our process. And I think that's the focus. It can't always be so results-oriented. It has to be, what do we do on a daily basis? How can we improve that and become better and provide more margin of error when we actually face the competition? And fortunately, in our sport, which is different than some businesses, I mean, you truly can measure success. 
from a wins loss perspective. And that's, you know, you're very fortunate to be able to do that. Tell us about a time you lost a, a key player on the team though, that, that really frustrated you. Yeah. How'd you get over it? It's tough. Because we lose, everybody loses top talent. I know. Well, I'll tell you, we lost in 2009, we lost our, probably our best player that year, Wes Welker. Um, in the last game of the season, we were playing in Houston. He tore his ACL in the first quarter of the game, week 17. And um, we were already in the playoffs. And uh, the next week, we played Baltimore here at home. And it was one of the biggest blowout losses we've ever had, certainly at home. And uh, that was tough because he provided so much production. And we had to prepare in a really short period of time without him. There's different times where you lose players in an offseason. You've got to try to fill the void. And the reality is every year there's change. This is the NFL. This is business. People get different opportunities. Good for them. They should. People retire. People move on. But you've got to figure out, you know, how to incorporate them as fast as you can. And you're right. You lose talent. Hopefully you can train more talent. You know, here's the last quote I'm going to share from a competitor, which is Russell Wilson. He says, when the game's on the line, he has no fear. Now, that's that's yeah. a great compliment to have, you know, have your peers see you as, as, as fearless. But I imagine there has to be some time when fear creeps in. Can you can you share with us a time where fear really creeped in and mm. how do you overcome it? I don't think it I don't think fear would be the word for me. Um, the only fear that I would have would be to have an injury and not be available with my team. That's uh -huh. a fear of mine. But the fear of a bad performance, I don't think I fear that much um, because I know I'm giving it everything I got. The fear of an injury sucks because I can't do what I love to do. Yeah. So outside and, you know, keeping perspective on a lot of things in life, you know, not that much matters. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what's, what's your proudest moment as a leader? Moments like that where you're holding up the trophy, you know, and you're looking out over your teammates and you've accomplished what you set out to. It's a lot like climbing a mountain of football season. Yeah. At the beginning, it's, it's daunting. It's a long ways. You're pretty fresh. You're excited. You get into it and you go, man, this is hard. <laughs> you know, and I still got a long way to go. And every day you just put one foot in front of the other and you'd be a little bit smarter. And as you get more into the climb, the harder it gets, the more yeah. fatigue you get, yeah. the more people you lose, yeah. the more confidence. Do I really have what it takes to reach the top? Yeah. And the colder it gets as the season goes, and the higher yeah. you get, there's less competition. Yeah. And do people have the will and the determination to drive and the stamina to make it up the mountain? And the reality is in the NFL, even though there's 32 teams, when you look back at the season, there's probably about 10 that are capable, and that's your real competition. Yeah. And um, the best part is being the one at the top of the mountain at the end of the year. Well, and you, I think when you start a new year, you got to start at the bottom of the mountain like everybody else. Well, this is interesting because I was going to ask you, after the Super Bowl loss to the Eagles, one of the, the comments that you made was the importance of what you could learn from the loss and teaching your boys. Yeah. You know, how so? Yeah. Well, because I think that's part of what perspective I've gained in being a dad. Because I'm a competitor. I want to win every time. Because I put a lot into it. And my teammates do too. 
But you know what? You don't win every game. And just because you compete doesn't mean you're going to win. So the gift is the competition. It's not the yeah. win. Yeah. The win is a byproduct of the gift. Yeah. So I think when I see my kids after the game and one of my sons is crying because he doesn't have the perspective, you know, and the sun comes up the next day yeah. and your life goes on. And what really matters is, you know, a lot of other things in your life, although sports are incredibly important in my life, when I'm done, things are going to keep moving. Have you, you ever know? had anything, Tom, where, you know, it's, I mean, everybody looks at you and you're like, you know, you greatest quarterback of all time, you yeah. know, all this stuff that's going for you. It's almost yeah. like you, there's no chinks in the armor, you know? And yeah. Have you ever had any, like, misfortune that you, you, you thought was a misfortune yeah. that ended up really being a blessing or, yeah. you know, talk a little bit about it. Have you had any yeah. failure in your, your life? Oh, a, lo a or, lot, a lot. Like I said, it's throughout my life, I think all the way up through probably 24 years old, there was not a lot of people that were believing in me, you know? I mean, I had to fight a lot, even through elementary school and sports you know, I was good. I was never the best. In high school, I was good. I was never the best. In college, I was good, but I was never the best. Um, and those, those shaped me. So when you get to be 24, you're not going to now, if we want a Super Bowl, think that like, oh, I should change. No, I should do more of what got me to that point. Yeah. So I feel like my life has been a bunch of failures. I've had a lot of success but it's been shaped by the things that haven't worked out. And I've certainly had a lot of things happen in my life personally that I've learned from that are very personal to me that have allowed me to gain different perspective. Yeah. And um, it's life. There's mm -hmm. nothing perfect about life. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't think so. You know, I think what it's learning is the most important thing. You have a, a multifaceted mental capability that, you know, everybody that knows you says, you know, it really sets you apart in, in, in so many different ways. And you're so positive. You know, you've got yeah. that positive energy, which yeah. everybody looks for. How do you keep that positive mindset going when you're faced with a barrage of negativity around you? Like, you know, with Deflategate being the biggest example. How did yeah. you how did you work through that? I think it's again, I think it's perspective you know, from my standpoint, like I, there's so much out there, you know, mm -hmm. and especially in today's day and age, you have two approaches. You can combat everything, you know, or you just let people say whatever they want to say. And I think in many ways, I've always felt like I should just stay out of the noise because really, you know, we're part of this system, you know, and this system is very all encompassing in terms of you know, making money and business and it's so much control and power, you know, mm. and I think I just dropped the rope and mm. I know who I am. You know, I know what I believe in and I'm very proud of that. And I'm going to try to maintain that. And I feel like it's part of social media is, you know, an act, you know, and I think there's class act too. You know, and I've always felt like, you know what, I'm going to be a class act. Yeah. Well, along those lines, you and Giselle, you, 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 probably face as high a profile as any couple that I know of. And you have tabloids who just can't wait to write the bad article and make money on yeah. whatever, you know, you, you guys put that aside and, and, yeah. and trudge on. 
I think you have to because you can't be controlled by a lot of exterior influences. And I think I learned that over the course of my athletic career. When you expose yourself to criticism just by the nature of your profession, and I think we all do that when you have a public life. And really, the reality is everybody's life is public. You know, you're going to be scrutinized. And the scrutiny now is much more global than it used to be because there's so many platforms for people to be able to express information and share information. You know, you talk about global. I mean, you're married to Giselle, so who's from Brazil yeah. and, and a renowned uh, model, worldwide known. Yeah. Has that broadened your perspective? How, how has that yeah. broadened your perspective as a leader? Incredibly. And because you realize that you're, you know, I think part of it is you're, you know, I have kids that are dual citizens, you know, they're Brazilian, but they're American too. They were born in America. And, but my wife said, I want them to be Brazilian citizens because my culture is equally as important as yours. And we're going to live in America, but I want my kids to experience what I grew up too, because it's, that's what you do in, in a marriage. And I think when you realize you're a citizen of the world and not just a citizen of the United States, it's a different perspective on life. When I go to Brazil, you know, that's my wife's home. But right. we're sharing the same planet. We're sharing the same air. We're sharing the same water. We're sharing the same resources. Now, unless you have that perspective, it's hard to think beyond that. You know, you probably marry someone across the country. It's different culturally. You marry someone of, you know, what, but, you know, multicultural marriage that I'm in, you know, it's, it comes with challenges and you face those challenges, but you learn from them. And right. I think I'm, I wouldn't have it any other way at this point. Yeah. Um, but it's absolutely a different perspective on the world. Yeah. You know, let's shift to, to the Tom Brady off the field and into the business world where you, you're really doing some exciting things. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. you know, uh, you're having great success. But uh, first of all, you know, when you think about brands, Tom, you know, brands stand for characteristics that, you know, that they want to drive home in all the communications. And, you know, you formed TB12. And I, yeah. I want to talk about that. But yeah. Tell me what the Tom Brady brand should convey in your mind. What what attributes would you want to project as a, as you market your brand? Just like Under Armour For markets sure. its brands. That's a great question, and it's not stuff that I've thought about too much. I mean, I know what TB12 stands for, the brand. Um, me personally, I've always felt like I'm a very hardworking, determined, disciplined leader. I mean, I think that's what I've tried to show and display in my work profession. And I think that that's, I've always been an underdog in some way. And I know people today go, how do you see yourself as an underdog? You're, you know, you've had success on the field. You're married to so-and-so. Everything seems like, oh, you know, you just rolled out of bed and this happened. But that's not my life. That's people's perception of what my life is. Yeah. I have a different perspective on my life because I've lived it. Yeah. So I take my experiences and I bring them with me and I use them so that I can make better decisions as I move forward. Yeah. So I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to be better today than I was yesterday. Yeah. I'm trying to be a better in a lot of areas because I know my life is going to continue to evolve and change and grow, and I should enjoy it. And I think having joy and happiness is, for me, is what always surrounding myself with fun people that I can learn a lot from is what has been the best experience of my life. You, you're, you've been quite successful linking up with some great brands like Under Armour, uh, Aston Martin, yeah. Beats, yeah. you know, 
did you have a process in terms of how you decided you were going to link up with those brands? What what was it that drove you to to do Under Armour, let's say, versus Nike? Or, I know. Or Aston Martin versus Ferrari? It's a great question. And I think it's, it's um, a lot of its intention. Like when I was younger, I would kind of wait to see who called and who was interested in me. And as I got older, I started to think about, why don't I go to the people that I'm interested in? Like if Aston Martin's my favorite car, why don't I go to them? <laughs> and if Beats are my favorite headphones, why don't I go to them? And you know what? It makes a great partnership because mm-hmm. I truly believe in it. Yeah. And all the partners that I've worked with, Under Armour is the same way. I mean, Kevin Plank's been a great friend of mine. I want to help him build his business and play my small part in, in that success. Um, so those are fun things for me. I mean, and I think more so than that is just the people that I'm working with, with those companies. So, you know, I've enjoyed those a lot. Tom, you've, you've really been innovative off the field and in business and you've created uh, TB12. Yeah. I had to take a different approach to my training when I was younger because what I had done for a period of time stopped working. And the traditional ways of taking care of your body no longer worked for me as an athlete. When I was in high school, I had elbow pain. I had knee pain. That's why I stopped playing baseball. I would ice my elbow. I'd ice my knees. I went to college, played football, loved football, got to the pros. Three or four years into my pro career, my arm's hurting every day at practice. And I'm sitting here going, how can I be a quarterback if I can't throw the ball? And I was introduced to my body coach, Alex, through a teammate of mine, Willie McGinnis, who was a mentor for me. And he said, Tommy, this is what you got to do for your elbow. You got to go start working with Alex. And I was like, well, what's he going to do? What, how can he be different than what everyone else does? Because I've already experienced all this training. You know, we have, we're the New England Patriots. You know, we're, we're have access to Boston. We're the top medical communities. And I had really bad tendonitis in my right elbow. And I had basically, what I had done was I had taken all these muscles in my form and I'd shortened these muscles. And I'd taken all these biceps and tricep muscles and I'd shorten these muscles. So I shorten the forearm, I shorten the bicep, I shorten the tricep. And what's hurting? The tendons in my elbow, because they're trying to hold the joint together. And Alex said, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to spend time lengthening and softening through pliability your forearm. And we're going to lengthen and soften your bicep. We're going to lengthen and soften your tricep. There's not going to be more pressure or tension on your, on your elbow tendon. And I was like, well, that makes a lot of sense. How are we going to do that? And we started doing pliability treatments on my elbow, on my bicep, my tricep. After three days, these were long and soft. These were long and soft. There was no more tension on my elbow. And I said, why has no one ever taught me that before? And I don't know. And I said, well, can you do it for my knee? And he's like, let's do it. So it was lengthen and soften my quad, lengthen and soften my hamstring, lengthen and soften my cap. No more knee pain. And after that, I was hooked. I said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, we worked together for about seven years before we started TB12. And I said, after all these years of pliability treatments, my body felt better at 32 than it did at 22. My elbow was not in pain. My shoulder wasn't in pain. And I said, okay, I played all these years. I'm throwing more footballs, but my elbow's hurting less because my muscles and my routines were getting better and better. So I felt like five years ago, how can I not pass this information on to other athletes? Is that why you wrote the book, TB12? And, That's and, why I did everything. Because yeah. I said, I've got this information that I've acquired. How am I going to take that with me and not share that with anyone? Because I know there's high school kids out there 
I know there's athletes that are in pain. And football is not fun if you're in pain. If you wake up every day and your neck hurts, your back hurts, things aren't fun. I've been fortunate to continue to play and have fun because I can go out and perform without pain. And not that I don't get injured, I do, because it's a demolition derby, but I can get fixed really quickly too. And I can maintain my exercise routine, which I always say is holistic and it's integrative. Like it's all encompassing. It's sleep is important as nutrition, which is important as hydration, which is important as the pliability treatments, which is important as strength training. And I think those five areas make up this really comprehensive program. Mm. And I think part of what we thought about for people to feel better is let's just think about if your shoulder hurts, let me just go to the shoulder guy. But the reality is it's the whole process. You know, Tom, I have to tell you, you're the absolute real deal. One thing I would put in your brand character is authentic. Yeah. You are the real deal and you tell it like it is and you have so much unbridled passion that it's it's yeah. inspirational just being around you. And I, I want to thank you very much for being on this podcast. I have just a couple little quick questions I want to ask you that are kind of fun. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. You just when was the last time you had some Kentucky fried chicken or a big cheesy <laughs> big cheeseburger? Oh man. A cheeseburger probably about a month ago. But I haven't had KFC in a while. Come on, man. Okay, now, what's, what's, what struck you the most about being the host of Saturday Night Live? Uh, it was so fun. It was, uh, it was an experience. When I finished, I was disappointed it was over because I had so much fun. <laughs> those it are the was, best. Those people worked so hard. And, and the, it ended, I was going up the elevator to my hotel room to end the night. And I said, shit, man. That was so fun. <laughs> that there'll never be another week like that again. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you received a lot of yeah. emails when that happened. But, you know, you are known for answering your emails almost like that. I'm pretty it, good at you it. You make it a priority? I know. Because, you know, I, I feel like people want responses back, and I don't want to get too far behind. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if I can rip them off, I do. We may not have time for this story, but the son of a great friend of ours said that you got to ask him about the time he got locked in the Notre Dame Stadium. Oh, man. Yeah, how about that? This, so this was, uh, I, I, I know who the friend is, and I know, I know who the son is. <laughs> but I was playing, uh, and Michigan plays Notre Dame to start the football season here in about four weeks. And uh, it was the way that I was going to start my fourth year in college. We were opening at Notre Dame, and I was the quarterback. My, one of my good friends got married really close to South Bend. And I had never been there. And I was driving back. This was about five or six weeks before the season opener. And uh, I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop in South Bend. And I'm going to go check out the stadium. Because the first time I go to Notre Dame Stadium, I don't want it to be the season opener. So I drove from just outside of Chicago back through South Bend. Stopped. It was a Sunday. And I, I mean, of course... I'm naive in some ways. I parked the car. I thought, oh, I'm just going to walk into the stadium. And of course, I couldn't walk into the stadium. It was totally closed off. You know, it had these massive gates. And I was like, you know, how could I come all the way here and not get in? So let me walk around the stadium, see if anything's open. So unbelievably, I get halfway around the stadium and one of the gates is unlocked. And I'm like, I'm going to go in. (laughs) But what I'm going to do is once I go in, I'm going to lock the lock to itself. So if someone comes by... They're going to see like, oh, you know, what happened? You know, this, nothing's, nothing's wrong. So I go in the stadium, lock the lock to itself. So I'm just going to come out right back where I entered. So I walk around the stadium for like 10 minutes, take it all in. I come back to the same spot 
where I came in and someone had come, they in the lock, they under the lock, they locked the gate and locked the lock. And uh, I'm locked in the friggin' stadium. And I'm like, and I look it around, it says no trespassing signs, violators will be prosecuted or whatever. And I'm sitting here thinking six weeks before the season opener, I'm gonna be in a friggin' South Bend prison for trespassing in Notre Dame Stadium. So I ended up finding a, a ladder on one of the walls on one of the handicap ramps that I knocked off the wall with a fire extinguisher. I took the ladder over the top of the stadium on the side, had to climb down about, undid the ladder about 20 feet and climbed down, jumped in my car and drove out of South Bend as fast as I possibly could. This so, is proof positive that you are determined, disciplined and a make it happen I know. guy. I know. Tom, thanks so much, buddy. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're great, great to be friend. with you. Thank you. Feel the same. I have to tell you, that's really cool to have the chance to interview Tom Brady. And it's really great to hear him uncut. I mean, Tom told us some stories that he has never, ever told publicly. But what I really want you to take away from this episode is not to learn how to break out of Notre Dame Stadium. I hope that's something that you never have to do. What I want you to learn is this. Great leaders back up their goals with disciplined action. And now it's time for my favorite part of our podcast episodes. This is where I give you some specific coaching that'll help you develop as a leader. This week, as part of your weekly personal development plan, here's what I want you to do. Think about the big goals that you set for your team. And here's the thing. I bet you also have a solid plan to reach them. But ask yourself, are there some tough action items you've been avoiding that you need to just dig into and knock out? I want you to make a list of those specific obstacles. Put it up on your desk and tackle them this week with some Brady-esque discipline. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders back up their goals with disciplined action. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the very best leader you can be.